This message by Sam Shin, entitled Overcoming Opposition, was recorded at Wellspring Church on February 17, 2019. The text for this message is Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 23. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now when Sanballat heard that they were building, that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break it down, break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come to fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. We prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them by day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each one labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his, strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. And so we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. So far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated.
The um, place that we are in is sort of in the midst of complete opposition against what Nehemiah is doing. And um, for the past few weeks, I've, I've quoted from a book, The Insanity of God. And if I know uh, it sounds redundant, it can be. But um, just the stories that uh, this missionary, Nick Ripkin, tells about being in the midst of many followers of Christ who have stood their ground in the face of severe opposition. It's just astounding. And this one quote that I just read and think and reflect on, I think so well sums up chapter 4, and it is this idea. One of the most accurate ways to detect and measure the activity of God is to note the amount of opposition that is present. Now, I don't think that always means that always holds true if it's because of sin. Sometimes when there's sin and someone is acting out of sin, there's going to be opposition to that, rightful opposition, godly opposition. But he's specifically referring to times where you are um, living by integrity, advancing the gospel of Christ through proclaiming Jesus as Lord and Savior, living by faith and The point is that when you are following the Lord, in this world, as Jesus says, you will have trouble. So it's not something that is far-fetched or extraordinary. Actually, if you are following Christ, it should be that this isn't a surprise to us. This actually makes sense, especially in light of what the Bible teaches and everything that Jesus said. So for Nehemiah to face this type of opposition, it should not be strange. Rather, it's very normative. And yet, the question remains for all of us, not just for Nehemiah, but for all of us who are trying to follow Christ and navigate uh, a very challenging world, you might say, is how do you overcome that opposition? What does that look like? And Nehemiah has a, a really great model upon which we overcome that type of spiritual and sometimes very physical opposition. So I'm going to look at three ways in which Nehemiah approached this process. First is, how did he face this opposition in verses 1 through 14? The second is, how does he fight the surrender of the people that he's serving? And that is very difficult. Maybe the most difficult part of opposition is the wilting of the heart. And then lastly is, how does, how does he overcome it? So first in verses 1 through 14, Nehemiah, in facing this opposition, he had to understand it. And to understand it was to look at all the different components of it. So I'm going to lay out for you a few components of what this opposition looked like. First, it was, it was a, a ridicule that was constant, persistent over the people of Israel. In verses 1 through 3, it says, Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it to themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. So Sembalat and Tobiah and Geshem, they take this tactic of ridicule. And the areas that they ridicule are their strength and skill. What are these feeble Jews doing? They ridicule the 
with prejudice. I mean, you really get that idea from these Jews, uh, this anti-Semite perspective. And it really has that you versus us mentality. And prejudice and bigotry is always one main area of ridicule. Another is that they're opposing them on the basis of questioning their motives. Uh, Will they sacrifice? Questioning their sense of comfort. They're only going to do what's best for themselves. They're not willing to care for other people and to do whatever they can to help the other person out. They ridicule their strategy and their administrative skill. Will they finish up in a day? In other words, they have no plan, no process. They haven't figured things out. Noah faced this as well, if you can recall, when he's building the ark. And he's building it on dry land, a gigantic boat. And uh, obviously the, the water is very far. So the people around Noah were ridiculing him day and night, saying, why are you doing this? You're, you're so, this is so absurd. We, uh, we understand this. Ridicule is a process upon which you try to demoralize what you deem to be the opposition or anything or any way in which it undercuts your sense of worth and your drive and your commitment. Any work of the Lord is going to face opposition on all fronts. And actually, and I do agree with Nick Ripkin, if you are doing something of the Lord, get ready to experience a lot of different types of adversity and obstacles. It always comes your way. As soon as you start to plan, say, for example, a Bible study that you want to lead, you're excited about it, a discipleship group, some sort of mission, an opportunity to reach out to the poor, whomever it might be. You know, when you always start something, it's always exciting. And then the middle comes, that dreaded middle. So usually the first two or three weeks, it's great. Let's say you have a 12-week study you wanted to do. The first two to three weeks, it's exciting. Then the fourth or fifth meeting comes along, and slowly, but the people in the group start saying, you know, it's raining really hard, and this bed is so comfortable. Or sitting next to this warm fire, reading this book, I just don't feel like going. It's not just the people who are in the group. It's the leader. Everyone feels that way. Any type of work of the Lord, it becomes challenging and difficult. It takes faith to say that regardless of how you feel, you will persevere because you trust that God has a plan for this. And so the more important the work is of the Lord, get ready for different avenues of opposition. You know, we talk about this because we're building a church building together. It's quite a a challenging task. It takes a lot of work on all fronts. And along the way, it's exciting. I would imagine, and I shared with the members last week, but when we gather for our first worship in that place, it's going to be really exciting. But it's the in-between period. It's It was exciting when we raised the money to purchase the building, and it's going to be exciting when we actually are in the building. But this period, it's hard. It's hard waiting. It's hard working. It's hard planning. And it's in this place that we understand a few things. First of all, Satan doesn't want us to be there. And I'll tell you a few reasons why. One is that, you know, in that place, 
is an Islamic center. And there's also a health and wealth prosperity gospel church and different groupings of people. It's a place where there's a lot of spiritual warfare in that place. And we have the potential to make an impact for the sake of the gospel. Um, I was talking to somebody and I was saying, you know, what are some of the ways that we could reach out to the Islamic center and to be not just a good neighbor, but to be the salt and light? How do we, how do we trust that God has brought us sovereignly there? And I don't think it's an accident that that's the place that opened up for us. But we need to be kind, generous, friendly to all of our neighbors. Who is our neighbor? Yes, the Islamic center. The Muslims, they're our neighbors, as well as those who don't believe the very things that we believe. And maybe they even believe something that's so against what we believe, and yet they're still our neighbors. So how do we still proclaim Christ to a place where there's serious, visible opposition? It's to present the gospel in all contexts, to all different types of people. It is going to be by faith that we are there not to be a religious organization, but to be a beacon of the gospel to go forth, even to that place and to the ends of the earth. And get ready, because in the midst of it, we've already faced opposition from the HOA, and that's there. And our natural tendency is, all right, now that we're in there, we're going to gain our vengeance. You know, we're going to make a difference to them. I don't think that's what the Lord wants of us. It is supposed to be, how do we shine the light of the gospel even to those who opposed us once and who were, quote, our enemies. If we are in Christ, it cannot be that we just simply say, we'll do whatever we want and anyone who gets in our way will smash them. It's That's the way of the enemy. And he will do everything he can, not only to oppose us by actually getting people to oppose us, but to oppose us in our own souls. And to have that heart of always being our first instinct is to fight back rather than to say, let's deny ourselves, take up the cross daily and follow. We understand this and it's not to, and you'll see Nehemiah takes very practical steps. He does defend himself, but the forefront and the foundation of everything he's doing thus far is laid on his relationship to his God, that ultimately he is a follower of the living God. And that brings humility, prayer, and fixing our eyes, his eyes upon him. So ridicule is the first uh, component of opposition. Second is distraction. Far more than the insults, it's the distraction that is deadly and dangerous. Because when you're in the midst of any type of spiritual work, again, it's easy to be thrown off track. It's easy to fix your eyes on yourself and not on God and to turn inward to yourself and to be more concerned about what someone else thinks of you than what God thinks of you. And when that happens, Satan has won. The opposition has won. It's hard. I was watching a, a video of Jay Fine. He's a, a veteran of the Iraq War. And he had his leg amputated. And it's a video of him deadlifting 275 pounds with one leg. Now, hoping to reach 300 pounds. Now, if some of you go to a gym and try to deadlift 275 or 300 pounds, most of us can't do it. Maybe a few of us can, but most of us can't. 
Now try removing one leg and doing it. And when I watch that video, you know, I see not just him doing that, but the hours it must have taken for him to start off as soon as he had his leg blown off in the war to fight self-pity, to fight despair, to fight fear, and to then every day start building your muscles and building your strength, going from maybe 45 pounds and then suddenly to 100. And that's that's after you've actually overcome that sense of dread and despair. It is very easy in the midst of any type of work, and including spiritual work, meaning if you've committed to pray, if you've committed to read scripture, if you've committed to share the gospel with somebody, if you've committed to disciple people, if you've committed to consider the lost, and as you have been convicted, and maybe after this message you say, I'm convicted. I need to do this. As soon as you say that and you walk through those doors, the enemy will start coming and saying, you don't need to do it. You're too busy. You're too tired. You're too ill. You're not feeling well. You don't have enough time. You don't, you don't, there, there's just no energy for you. And then if that doesn't work, then there's your phone. You go on your phone, you start looking at all the blogs, and, oh, I need to buy this, I need to research this. And then there's friends and work. The list is endless, and it starts flooding your soul. So the conviction that you face, as soon as you hear this and you say, I want to change, walk through those doors, and the enemy begins his work. Distraction, distraction, distraction. It is exactly the reason why self-pity Depression, despair, it's so easy to succumb to because you can feel strong about something, but it fades over time, which is all the more reason why we need other people around us. We need God's word implanted in our hearts so that we might not sin against him. We need to remember God's faithfulness to us. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves. We need to believe that he does forgive our sins, even if you have done something so terrible that you think God does not love you. He still loves you. Next are threats. And our, our enemies said in verse 11, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And then verses 7 through 8, but when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. This is a story of literally the enemies are at the gate. Nehemiah says in verse 12, at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. Fellow Jews were telling them, give up. You need to come to us. They were not telling Nehemiah because they knew Nehemiah was set. He was, he was the leader. But the way they were doing it is that through the plotting and the rumors and the gossip, as they're able to spread that type of questioning and doubting and fear. You know how gossip works. It doesn't take much. It takes one word or just pull someone aside and say, Hey, you know about this, this wall that we're supposed to be building, do you really think it's the best thing we should be doing? Shouldn't we be instead doing this? 
Do you think Nehemiah, this foreigner who's come from another land, who isn't even a Jerusalemite, do you think he should be the one who's leading? What about this person? He seems more better apt. He's more plugged in. He's more tied in. And those words, they can sound practical and sound wise to an extent. But in actuality, they're meant to undermine and to subvert. And when that happens, it really is a plotting together. And that's an important word that the Nehemiah uses in, in writing this text, the narrator. And they all plotted together to come and fight. See, it's, it's physical violence, verse 11. They plotted to kill them. So sometimes, and again, in, in places around the world, this truly is happening. That Christians are being threatened physically, and it happens every day of the year. Every moment, people's lives are under threat. And though maybe for us, we might ex- not experience physical threat, though you could, but in many ways, you can experience at least psychological, emotional intimidation, a sense of fear, because if we say, I believe in Jesus, in a certain context, suddenly you become ostracized. Maybe you lose privileges or a sense of reputation amongst fellow workers, co-workers. We are a people who, if we are following Christ, the norm is that we will face opposition, not the exception. And if we are not facing opposition, then we have to ask the question, are we living our life for Christ? Or are we protecting ourselves more? It's a hard thing to ask yourself, actually. It's very convicting. It, it's hard because really it should say, what is it in my life that I'm never constant, I'm never under a place where I actually have to live by faith. That I actually have to trust God more than I have to trust what I feel or what I believe to be right in the moment. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Is that true? So the Bible, Peter says, this is what's happening. Now, either we believe it to be true because the Bible says it, and if I don't experience it, then maybe there's a, t- a f- couple of things that are happening. First is, I'm not experiencing it because I'm not pro- proclaiming Christ. Second is, I'm not experiencing it because I'm not in Christ. I don't even follow or believe in Jesus, so therefore, I'm not someone that Satan would be even... like. I'm so uh, so insignificant in Satan's eyes because I'm already doing his will that I actually am not his target at all. Yes, he can just leave me alone. I'll do his bidding. The third is that I have, I am doing his bidding and I don't even realize it. And that is a possibility too. And that can happen in many different ways through poor leadership, being a, an adversary to people, being someone who is a, a, a means of gossip or a means of division and dissension. Someone who is cynical and trying to bring people down. This is a reality according to what Peter says. And so if opposition then can lead to this, it can also lead, and it happens because of these factors, it leads to quitting or surrender or despair in verse 10. 
in Judah, it was said the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. This, These words come from the same people in chapter 2 and chapter 3 who said, Let us arise. Let us build. We can do this. We're able to do this. And yet now, they're at a place where their strength is failing. The burdens are too great. The passion was initial, but it starts fading away. And don't um, forget that this task truly was difficult. Um, it was very hard to build a wall 20 feet high. You know, I was reading more articles on this because there's a lot of debate as to how big Nehemiah's wall was. It's anywhere from 4 feet, some say to 15 feet thick. I don't know, that would almost be like a square. I don't know if it would be a square wall. It doesn't sort of make sense. But let's say a 10-foot thick wall, 20 feet high, and with no electrical tools, no power tools, nothing, and no skilled labor. So no one who has experience in carpentry or very few people. And you have just random people, people like us. So imagine if we were to say we had to build this wall. And just a few people who are skilled at doing it, but the rest of us are going, I have no idea what to do. I can give you my hands and that's it. And so they're building this wall and it is so hard. A few things about this wall is that the rocks and stones, according to this text, they were burnt and broken, some in so many different pieces because the wall had been torn down. And when uh, Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed Jerusalem's wall in 586, and so when these, this wall is being rebuilt, it's being rebuilt from a wasteland. So if you first looked out at this wall, it would just seem impossible of a task. On top of that, you start being excited about it. We can do this. We can do this. So everyone's getting ready. And slowly you're starting to do the actual lifting. Who knows? Using fulcrums and levers and maybe pulleys, you know, manual built pulleys that they're lifting up. And every, all the different people, men, women, children, who knows, are gathering under these large stones and piling them on top of each other in the, in the Israeli heat. So it's really hot there. That would make sense why they're in this place saying, our, our strength is failing. There's too much rubble. We can't do this. We cannot do this. Any task that is worthwhile doing, you all know this, and you know, the older you get, the more you know this to be true. Any task, and you, I always think, if I could just take my 50-year-old brain and give it to my 10-year-old self, 12, 15-year-old self, if I could only do that, that's wisdom. If you could only have a child who understands the wisdom of life, right? Not so easy. And yet, that's what you want is someone to understand Perhaps the greatest lesson of all, don't give up. Don't surrender. Stay steadfast. God will see you through. Turn to the Lord. They had the three-point contest yesterday, and uh, I didn't get a chance to watch it, but Steph Curry came in second, if you know. But I was reading an article about Steph Curry as a middle schooler. And if you know anything about Steph Curry's jump shot today, it's 
He's considered one of the, maybe the best shooter of all time in basketball history. But he had a particular jump shot in high school, and it was a problem shot because he shot from the middle of his body. He was really scrawny, and he was very little. And so he, as if some of you have middle schoolers and they're playing basketball and you see how they shoot, it's not that perfect form. And so he's shooting from the lower part of his body because he couldn't get the, the strength from the top. And so as he advanced from middle school to high school to college, and as he was facing older and taller players, his father, Dell realized that if he shot from here, he would be blocked all the time. So one summer, they decided to change his shot. And he's a middle schooler, and so they decided to change it so that he'd be shooting from the top. And as a young, scrawny little boy, he wasn't really able to do it. But his father forced him to, even if he got blocked in his shot every time. And he said, it was the worst summer of my life, basketball speaking. But yet that constant repetition of even experiencing failure and having a shot blocked constantly made him to be the player he is today. And I do think whether you're talking basketball or even spiritually or any task at hand, that if we are in a place where you have a vision, and it has to be a very clear vision, but if you have a vision and you say, I want to go there, it's very easy to be excited about it when you say, I'm going to start. Whether it's, I'm going to lose weight, or I'm going to study to be a doctor, or I'm going to start a Bible study. It's always easy to be excited and then when it finishes, it's so ecstatic. You say, praise God. But boy, that middle part is so hard. And I will say this, is that it is our nature to quit. That's why Jesus is the one. If our hope, can you imagine, truly, if our faith was completely utter dependent on our strength, that would be miserable because that would mean that every day I've lost my salvation every day because I know what I'm like. If I've gotten testy with my son, I, I might've lost my salvation right at that point. And suddenly I have to do something to gain it back. But if we believe Philippians one six, that he who began a good work will carry it to completion. What a wondrous promise that is. Because you see, God understands what we're like. He knows that if left to ourselves, could we ever save ourselves? The answer is no. We couldn't. But Jesus carries us to completion. He picks us up. He took the cross and bore it for us. And he carried it all the way to the end. Not my will, but your will be done, he says on Gethsemane. You know, he did that because he knew we would be exactly like this. That we would say, it's too much. I can't do it anymore. I do think of Aaron and Olivia. I do think of the fact that they have been on such a quite a journey. And it's been difficult. It's been hard. And for all of us who have had healthy children born to us, 
you know, it's a, it's a given. You almost expect as soon as you hear baby's going to be born, everything's going to be okay. But what happens when that does not occur? I was listening. I was uh, sharing a video with my kids on a, a sermon that John Piper preached on the health and wealth prosperity gospel. And he gives this illustration and he says, imagine you're driving a car. And if, as you drive this car, your baby, you, you slam on the brakes, you get into an accident, your baby girl goes through that windshield and s- hits the pavement dead on and dies in an instant. Will you say God is enough? Will you say God is good? Can you say God is faithful? That even in the midst, it's not to say you don't experience pain, it's unbearable pain, but it's God is still enough. He's still good. The only way you can say that is if you actually believe that God is everything Scripture says He is, that He knows what He's doing. He is not someone who is just ruling this world, and we're simply automatons who just do whatever He, whatever we want Him to do, but rather He has ultimately our good. And it's to say that I will not quit, I will not surrender. So Nehemiah is building this wall with these Jews whose hearts are failing, who are slowly surrendering, who are facing all sorts of opposition, external and internal. And how do you then guard? How do you overcome this? He gives a couple of ways. First is prayer. I know we have talked a lot about prayer in Nehemiah. I'm so thankful for Nehemiah because actually it does remind us that this is not uh, a physical work, our lives. The build, church building is not about building a building. It's about building a tool. You know, it's only a tool. Once it becomes an end rather than a means to an end, then it's but a shell, an empty grotesque shell. But if it is a, a godly tool, then it can be used, but it has to be covered with the Lord. J.I. Packer, quoting William Temple, says this, whereas we think our real work is our activity to which prayer is an adjunct, our praying is our real work and our activity is the index of how we have done it. Now, if you just think about that for a moment, that Let's say, let's take, for example, the church building, giving money, planning, the construction, all that. You might say, when you look at it, you're going to say, wow, that was a lot of great work. But if you take what Packer is saying and what William Temple is saying is that his point is that, you know, that's, that doesn't mean anything actually. It's the prayer. It's the dependence on God with the relationship to him that makes any work worthwhile. Otherwise, it's unworthy, useless work. You know, useless work is a terrible scourge to us. Have you ever, I have shared this illustration before, but have you ever, like, you get something from Ikea. You know, you get those really bad instructions. They're always bad instructions. They have, like, you know, two little pictures on it. And somehow you sort of, everyone has to be a mechanical engineer to build something from Ikea. This quite often happens to me because I'm not so mechanically inclined as that. I will start building it and then I turn something backwards. And I am at a crossroad because it's almost done. I'm thinking, okay, do I leave it backwards 
or do I redo it all over again? And, you know, if someone, someone will, I hear it in the background, you gotta redo it over again. And so I say, oh, I hate that. It's so hard to redo something you've done. Well, prayer makes sure that we're doing it properly. It really is not just the right instructions, but it's, it's the covering. And we must never forget that what we do here and throughout your lives is a spiritual work. And what I've been so blessed by ever since our prayer and fasting week has been the, just the, the joy of praying unceasingly. And that's in walking, in waiting. Sometimes these days I've been trying to do a lot more of turning my radio off because I listen to different, I don't listen to music, but I listen to a lot of talking. And eventually the talking just sounds foolish. So I turn it off and I just spend some time praying, talking to the Lord. We spend a lot of times in cars, on the BART, in buses. Uh, it's the reality of being in the Bay Area with commuting traffic. And those are great opportunities to spend some time just talking to the Lord, asking questions, interceding, praying over the building, doing all these things. Paul says this in Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, against uh, uh, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We must never forget that this is not flesh and blood battle, but this is spiritual battle. And therefore, you do not fight spiritual battle with physical weapons. You fight it with spiritual weapons. And one of the key weapons that we have that's actually an offensive weapon, many of those that Paul lists in Ephesians 6 are defensive weapons, shield of faith, breastplate of righteousness. But in this instance, the only one is prayer is an offensive weapon. That and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Nehemiah did all that he could, as we will see in the next, um, next, to work hard to prepare for the task at hand. So praying doesn't mean don't plan, don't organize, don't envision, don't battle. But every time he faces some sort of opposition, look at his response. So in verses 1 through 3, he faces ridicule, right? What we talked about. Look at his response in verse 4. Hear, O our God, he's praying, for we are despised, turn back their taunt on their own heads, and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So when he faced opposition, his instinctual response as someone who was in relationship to God was to pray, to go on his knees and to to come before him. Sometimes it's not on his knees. Sometimes it's just in his mind, in his heart. And look at what he prays for. He prays for God's justice. It's not a long prayer, but it is urgent and it is sincere. And it's not a prayer that's prayed out of wishful thinking. He believes it. And you might read that prayer, and I don't know if you think this, but you might think, boy, that sounds so harsh. I thought we were supposed to love our enemies. Why does Nehemiah, not Nehemiah pray this way? I think it's because we haven't faced that this type of spiritual opposition strong enough to recognize why you would pray with God's justice in mind. Now I've been, um, you know, I, I've been telling you, I've been hearing from George Sneeman. Uh, he's the founder of Hands at Work. It's a um, it's a ministry that we partner with in Southern Africa, 
And if you could please pray for me and Thomas and Dan, we'll be going this next three weeks. So you won't see me for a few weeks. Uh, we'll be joining him and hearing all that the Lord is doing and preparing the team to go to Zimbabwe. But <clears throat> he's in the area of Goma, which is in the northeastern area of the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And it's an incredibly dangerous place. But I've been talking to him real time in, in WhatsApp, and he told me this story, told some of us this story of a woman named Jingu. And Jingu is a, uh, she, she is one of the care workers. She's one of the leaders at the care point in Goma. Two years ago, while George was there, the night before he met with her, armed rebels had come in and attacked her village. And specifically, um, she was gathering a lot of the, the little children and the armed rebels wanted to take the boys because what they do is they grab all the little boys and they uh, force them to join their rebel military. And she held her ground and pleaded with them and said, please do not take these boys. And so she um, pleaded with them. And so they decided to not take the boys, but they took anything that the village had, which were goats and any other little foods that they had. So basically this place where literally they have nothing, they took whatever nothing they had, and at least they didn't take the children. The next day, Jingu goes and meets George, and he was doing a, a study on it's called The Jesus We Know. And she comes, and she wants to be in on that study. Can you imagine going from a place where you have guns to your head, where you're protecting little children, who are trying to be enslaved into a rebel army, and the next day you want to attend a Bible study? Talk about us who, oh, it's raining too hard. I don't feel like going today. I'm feeling, I, the sniffles are coming on. And here you have a woman who has guns pointed to her head going to a Bible study. The story continues. Two years now today, he was in Goma, and they are walking because George had a little child who was had malaria and had 105 fever. So they were trying to get him to the nearest clinic. So they're running to try to get this little boy who was about to die to this clinic. Jingu, Eric, who's the, who's the representative at DRC and George and holding the baby. And as they're coming along, this drunk soldier comes in the back of them and is following them. And eventually she, she tells him, leave us alone. We don't need your help. And he comes and he literally points the gun to her head and says, you know, demands um, that he becomes aggressive. He's, he's pushing her. George stands and says, you know, aggressively. He has a baby in his hand and he's saying, leave her alone. And he still refuses. And he's, and they're becoming so angry. And, and George is just getting furious. When I hear this, the, the words that came were Psalm 72, 4. May he defend God. May God defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. You know, I think we have a hard time hearing a prayer like what Nehemiah is praying in verse 4 and 5 because we haven't experienced this type of injustice where the enemy is at work Lives are being threatened and you are trying to follow God and serve his people and yet dangers await. 
And sometimes all you can do is cry out to the Lord of justice and say, God, crush the oppressor. Sometimes prayer is like that. I'm not saying all the time. That's a unique prayer. But there are those times where we pray for the Lord's justice to be at hand. So you could continue praying for George and for our team that's going to be going out there. Not just prayer, but we see that there's preparation as well. The threats are real. Armed camps are forming. Rumors of war and violence are swirling. And the hearts of the people are melting. And the desires to give up are in their midst. So he prays, verses 1 through 6. Then he prays again, verse 9. But while he's praying, what else is he doing? He's setting up round-the-clock patrols and a guard in verses 10 through 16. You know, most of these people are not soldiers. They're regular people. But they had to fight in order to be able to overcome. And then verse 14 is critical. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. He's telling this to the Israelites. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah reminds them why they're doing this. It's utmost for God, and it will benefit. By honoring God, the benefit will be to those whom they care for and love. And then Nehemiah tells the leaders in verses 18 to 20, and each of the builders had the sword strapped at his side while he built the man who, the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread. And we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. Our God will fight for us. Rally to us. I mean, look at those words. It is, we are together in this. We have to be together. That is the only way that you can overcome the difficulties of that middle area. We pray together. We rally together. We fight together. And we remember that God is fighting for us. And unless we grasp that idea so deeply, this is why we need the church. This is why that just simply gathering at your house every Sunday to pray and have a worship. And many of us could do that. You have the potential to do that. You can teach. You can have someone play the guitar. You can have your kids maybe take offering to for each other, whatever it might be. But one thing you will not be able to do is encourage one another in this way. We have to rally together. Nehemiah's words in verse 20 is so critical. The full faith that God will fight for us. This is not a human task to build a wall, to build a church, to build a building. If it's only a human task, then it will be worthless. It will be, you know, that church building will only have faded memories. It will last for one or two generations, and then it's going to go back to being an office building. But if it is a place where Jesus is worshipped and the gospel goes forth, Amazing things can happen. God has overcome opposition. He's the one who's done this already for us. May we never forget that. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 says, Now since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. I love what Jesus and what John says, perfect love casts out fear. And the perfect love of God's son who conquered sin and death and destroyed the works of the devil, overcame opposition, casts out fear forever and ever. 
And I pray that as we move forward, we will never forget that truth. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, you are our rock, our redeemer, our strong tower. You overcame opposition fiercely when it was overwhelming, when it could not stand, when we could not stand. But we thank you that, Jesus, you, um, you went to that cross even when it was so difficult. Nothing stopped you. So we pray that as we gather, as we take this communion, we would remember the cost, the high cost of following you. And that especially when we're doing spiritual work, help us to pray and help us to remember how hard it is to finish to the end. But we can't do it. We won't be able to do it on our own. But you've done the work already. And all you ask is for us to trust you. Help us to have that trust and faith, O Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.